They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if they don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours? Or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 31 Picking Up the Pieces Welcome back, everybody. Seems a long time ago since we last spoke about Fred. In fact, it wasn't really that long ago, middle of March. But having a break has been beneficial. It's allowed me to take a look at another case, and that's been very interesting. And it's also allowed me to devote myself to my day job a little bit more. And that was very necessary. But it's also allowed us the time to take stock of where we'd got to, even though I've been trying not to think about the Fred case. The fact is, I'm always thinking about the Fred case. And whilst we've not been doing any active investigations, sometimes just letting things stew for a while can be helpful. I also missed it. And that enforced absence definitely made the heart grow fonder for this, the original case. First things first, let me update you with any official police news on the investigation. I've been keeping my eye open in terms of anything that might have been released. And in short, there hasn't been anything. No press releases, no breakthroughs, no new developments. And that, of course, is not unexpected in a 50-year-old case. But in the four months since we were last here, the temperature of this particular cold case, as far as the police are concerned, has simply dropped a few more degrees. Now, one of the ways I'd hoped to open Series 2 was to talk to the police, set up an interview with Burton Police about the case and talk through their efforts to solve the case over the last 50 years. And I've tried and tried to get them to do this, but I have to say, to no avail yet. There doesn't seem to be any likelihood of hearing from the official investigators on this any time soon. Now, that's understandable to a degree because it's a 50-year-old case, it's got no leads or progress, and there's a lot more recent cases that require their attention. I get all that. But it's still disappointing because over the last year the podcast has been released, it's been downloaded nearly 100,000 times by people all over the country and all over the world, and therefore represents a very good opportunity for the police to reach people that they've never reached before. But so far, and I don't know the reasons behind it, that is not happening. It's disappointing, but it's out of our hands. One final piece of housekeeping before we plunge back into the case. Most of you will know that I've been working on a second case, The Gentleman of Heligoland, 
And when I say I, I really mean we. One of the things that I've enjoyed most about that case is working with Ian and Joe. It has meant that we've been able to cover far, far more ground. I get a second and third opinion when I need that. And also, different minds think of different things and come up with different ideas. And I found that very beneficial in that investigation. So Ian and Joe will be much more involved in this second series of Fred. And you'll be hearing a lot more from both of them throughout this series. And I think that team works well. So where do we start season two? Well, we left season one with an hypothesis. And one, to be honest, that I have not seen any reason to change fundamentally in the intervening time period. And it'll be interesting to see what the hypothesis looks like at the end of season two and how we compare that to where we are currently. Some parts will be radically different, I'm sure. Some of it will be as we already think. But firstly, one of the other byproducts of research in a completely different case is that I've developed a set of other experts that I can talk to. One such expert is a lady called Josephine Narge, who, as well as being of Hungarian descent, is a paediatric dentist in Germany, who demonstrated, very interestingly, some key aspects of the misalignment of the gentleman of Heligoland's dentistry. Now, these two cases share dentistry as important clues, so therefore I thought it might be interesting or useful to let her take a look at the photographs of the dentistry of Fred, just to see if she could spot anything worth noting. And she did. So let's get back into this by talking to Josephine Narge about what the dentistry of Fred was indicating to her. Well, I'm joined by Josefina Narge, who was incredibly helpful when we were talking through the dentistry of the gentleman of Heligoland, and very kindly, Josefina has offered to take a look at Fred's dentistry photographs. So uh, I've sent them over to Josefina, and what jumps out at you, Josefina, I'm very interested in uh, what your thoughts are, having had a look at uh, Fred's dentistry. Hi, Ken. Well, thank you for letting me have a look at the pictures. And the first thing I thought was that you have a preference for victims who have a distinctive look. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at the pictures and I have to tell you, they were on my mind for one and a half days. Wow. And the more I looked at them, the more Fred became familiar to me. I really think that I have uh, found out some things that might be interesting for you. Right, well, I can't wait. So what was the most striking thing? When you, when you saw those photographs, was, was there anything very obvious you thought, well, actually, this, this, this is important? Yes, well, the first thing is, of course, the underbite, uh, which I think was already mentioned in the podcast. But um, compared to the photos that were generated um, as a mock-up for Fred, 
I think that the photos um, are too attractive uh, for Fred because of his underbite. And I'm missing a profile uh, photo of uh, Fred because that would be very interesting to see how he really looked like. From the front, you cannot really see his underbite that well. Okay, well, that's interesting because it sounds to me like you're suggesting that the underbite was of such a degree, it would have been extremely noticeable to people. Yes, absolutely. Right. Okay, okay. And in fact, those pictures do show quite a handsome man in a way. And you're saying yes. maybe there would be more disfigurement apparent than perhaps those photos show. Oh, yes, because if you have a profile pic, people would remember him more. He said, yes, I knew a man that looked like that, and that's very distinctive. And um, you may be familiar with the saying of the Habsburg lip, yeah. where the chin is very much up front, and that's the same with Fred. Right, so, and that's important, and it's important for me, for me to ask a question, because yes, the, the Habsburg dynasty in Central Europe were famous for having this, this underbite, very significant. Is that more prevalent in Europe than in other parts of the world? Or do we not read too much into that? Is it widely distributed around the world's population? Yeah, I think that's something that we cannot put a hand on, no. Okay, so we shouldn't deduce simply because no. this person had this underbite that there may, that may be an indicator of Central European origin. No, no, I would say okay. no. Okay, okay. But what you are saying is that that underbite was perhaps more pronounced, more noticeable than we may have given it credit for so far. Absolutely. And our investigations may be significantly helped by a profile image rather than a frontal face image. Yes. Now, those dentures that he had, that, that dental work that he had, was there anything about that that jumped out at you in terms of something that might be of importance? Yes, well, when I looked at the dentures, they were um, very familiar to me because they are very simple dentures. Uh, these are made for people who have just lost teeth and are planning to go into more expensive dentures uh, just for, for temporarily um, um, dentures. And they're very, very simple, and they can, they can be made from one day to another in a, in a, by a dental technician. Of course, people would use these dentures as a long-term long dentures if they don't have money or they are afraid of the dentist, things like that. Okay, so what is it about those dentures that suggest that? Is it the materials? Is it the rudimentary nature of them? What's, what makes you Yeah, it's the clips. They're okay. two just very simple clips. Well, they're not metal cast clips, which uh, you need, uh, a dental technician would need a few days to, to do these. And they are very, very simple. So they're almost wire, are they, or something like yes, that? Yes, wire. That's, these are like very simple wires that you use for these kind of dentures. They are called temporary dentures. Right, and that would have been the case back in 1968 as well. That, that as would... well. Okay, okay. So what you're suggesting here, the, the denture he was wearing either 
was a temporary one awaiting a more permanent solution or a temporary one that the person has decided because of lack of funds to live with yes or maybe because he was afraid of the dentist but i really think that these were fred's first dentures um because uh, he only had one for the upper jaw why didn't he, he have one for the lower jaw and I think he let the dentures, he had the dentures made because he had a problem that occurred maybe six to month, uh, nine months uh, before his death. Okay. And, and I think he lost a tooth in the uh, visible range of his head, of his mouth. Uh, he uh, lost the um, left upper canine or cuspid, and then he had a gap. In his teeth and he had to make a choice to have dentures done. Well that's really interesting so what, what we're saying here is that a situation that arose he lost a tooth that was the prompt was the motivation for him to say okay I need to get these dentures done. Right. If that had not had happened he may not have got the denture at all. Yes that's what I think. I really think he was a man who, who neglected his teeth when he was younger or was afraid of the dentist. When he was uh, older, he, he kind of maintained his uh, teeth better and then he lost a teeth. And uh, then he had to uh, make these dentures and um, he really maintained the, them uh, very well because uh, you can see they are not dirty or anything. So, when the police were indicating that these were rather sophisticated pieces of dentistry, that someone has spent significant amount of money because their appearance was of significant importance to them, that's not what you're describing at all. Oh no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. They're very simple dentures. They were not very expensive and they could be done very fast. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Now, the other thing the police said at the time was because of the veined nature of the acrylic, that was material that was not commonly used in the UK at the time. What's your thoughts on the veined acrylic well, at that time, that was very common in Europe. Even I, in, 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 in this uh, century, I, I've seen dentures with these kind of fibers in the, in the plastic, in the resin, uh, to make it look more uh, realistic with veins and things like that. But nowadays, they're not used very much. Um, but I think, why should the UK be different to continental Europe? I think they were used there as well. In fact, I called a dental technician in Bristol and he uh, confirmed that they were used in the UK. Okay, that's interesting. I must admit, I've never had a great deal of faith in what the police have said about the dentistry, uh, mm. but that's interesting. But clearly they could have been made in Europe, but equally they could have been made in the UK using that. They could material. have been made everywhere. Okay, okay, that's, that's interesting. And I'm asking you perhaps to speculate a bit here, which, which is unfair of me, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> uh, obviously, this is a man, to, to a certain degree, where appearance was important, because when he lost that tooth in the visual area, he decided mm. to do something about it. 
And I'm thinking about his motivation here. That may have been simply a cosmetic thing, or it could have been that he was planning a change of life and planning maybe moving somewhere else, maybe doing something else, and therefore wanted to present himself in this best possible way when he made that change in his life. I know I'm speculating, but that, does that make sense to you? Is that the kind of motivation you see in the dentistry world? Oh, yes. I can see it because, you know, um, when you have your teeth done, you have motivations. If you don't care, you, you, you just live with a gap in the, vis the visible area. Mm. Um, but I think he, he really cared about it. And... Um, I think he had to make a choice to go to the dentist, even if he was afraid or, you know, spend some money. Yeah. Uh, is there any evidence of the underbite and how that was working in terms of the mechanics of his jaw in relation to the denture? I mean, do you see evidence of the underbite in wear patterns and things like that within the teeth and the denture? Oh yeah, you can see uh, where where the, the the tooth that he that he lost where it was replaced, the upper left canine. Um, you can see there as well that uh, it's already crunched. So um, his underbite had him crunching that tooth, and that's probably why he lost it uh, in the first place. Ah, okay. Yes, and it's very common for people with underbite to have that kind of problems. Okay. And I think so, that's the reason he lost the tooth. And, and does that wear pattern continue yes. in, in the denture? Yes, it does. You can see it very obviously in the replacement tooth. It's crunched again. Okay. Now, already. And again, this is a difficult question, I think, but does that give any indicator or are there any indicators of how long this man would have had that denture for before his death. Yes, I can tell you very specifically that it was six to nine months because you can see it in the bone healing in the skull. So we're saying pretty categorically between six and nine months before this man died, and he probably died in 69 or 70, that's when this dental work was done. Yes. Which would have made it about 1960. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Well, Josefina, as always, you've come up with the goods. Yes, well, I'm happy I could help. I probably would have told you much more if somebody who was a dentist took the pictures back then, because a dentist uh, would make other pictures, uh, take other pictures with more information. But um, it was really fun to uh, have a look at it. Thanks, Josefina, and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you, Ken. Well, that's an interesting start. We've had a number of dental experts talk to us on the podcast in the past, and they always add to the bank of knowledge about the dentistry. And the dentistry is a very, very important part of this case. But let's just summarize what Josefina said. Firstly, this underbite, it's much more significant a disfigurement than perhaps we've given credit for in the past. Perhaps it's time to rethink the image. Maybe that lower jaw jutted out far further than we think. Secondly, these were as simple a set of dentures as you could possibly get. Not expensive, the most basic, and perhaps a temporary solution that turned into a long-term solution. Definitely contradicting the 
original police view of expensive, sophisticated dentistry. It was, in fact, simple, cheap, quick dentistry. Thirdly, something I find interesting and had never occurred to me before, there was a motivation, a key motivation for having those dentures done. He'd lost his upper left canine. That's in the visible range of your mouth. And that point seemed to be the trigger for him having these dentures done. What does that tell us about what was happening in his life at the time? And fourthly, and very interestingly, Josephine is very certain this dentistry was done six to nine months before he died. Now, if that dentistry was done in Europe, and we don't know that for certain, but if it was, we know that man was in Europe six to nine months before he dies at Winshill. So that gives us a very narrow window for when that person would have come to the UK. That is extremely useful. Now, it could have been done in the UK, but if it was done in the UK, where are the records? They don't seem to exist. So that's a very interesting point Josefina makes. Now, I mentioned that I'd be working with Ian Mackay and Joe Willis more on series two, something I'm very much looking forward to. And one task that Ian happily volunteered for was to go through the whole of the first series and give us his opinion of what was important and what was trivial. The reason I wanted to do that is that I wanted a second opinion on where to focus our efforts going forward. So I caught up with Ian last week to talk that through and it was useful. I think it gives us a very good platform to move forward from. So Ian, hey, I know you've had COVID over the last couple of weeks. How are you, how are you feeling now? Oh, I'm bouncing back in, I'm bouncing back, you know. <laughs> you don't sound That's like bouncing. I'm definitely more bouncy than I have been for the last week or two. It's uh, it's a horrible thing, isn't it? It's just sort of yep. being drugged all of the time. Yeah, no, it is. Way. It's unpleasant. So, and not only have you had the torture of having COVID, you've had the torture of going through 30 episodes of Fred. <laughs> not really a torture, because it's been quite good. Put it on everywhere I go for a little poodle, listen to one or two at a time, and it can get through it relatively quickly. So, yeah, I had all 30 of them in about a fortnight, and it's interesting going back and listening from the beginning again lots of things leaping out that i'm waiting to hear the update on and we've never we've never gone back to it so i want to try and flag up one or two areas i think which to me seem really obvious that, that we need to do a lot more work on mm-hmm. um but also i, I mean I, I found it all very riveting very interesting whichever rabbit hole you've been down there are one or two rabbit holes that went that have been going for episode after episode after episode and i'm just wondering is that going anywhere if you see what i mean i do see what you mean and that's exactly why i'm glad you did it because having a second opinion on why did you leave that behind uh and why did you spend a lot of time on that of course in the moment you know when we're doing it on a daily basis on a weekly basis you, you you're following the light at the end of the tunnel and you don't know where that tunnel's going to be but it's, I think, great to be able to sit back after 30 episodes and say, well, I think that tunnel is more important than that tunnel. And for someone like you to go through that is, is, uh, is extremely helpful, actually. So brilliant. So, so where do you want to start? I mean, I suppose, you know, chronologically, you know, going back to the start, was there anything in the early parts of the, of the podcast that you thought? Mm, well, 
Yeah, several things. Several things. Who's the who is our uh, resident serial killer? Tony Hardy. In a tiny place, which it is, I think you've I've got between five and seven thousand population. Yeah. At this time, there is a youth into teenage into early twenties serial killer of the future, mixing with a lot of the characters that are being drawn out in all the different conversations and inquiries that you've made. He couldn't have existed in his bubble, you know. He would have been drinking in the pub. He'd have been going to see the bands. I just think that we've got to do more on what he was doing when he was there. Because he was of the right age. I mean, he, he, he was 1869. He was 19 in 1970. He'd gone to Imperial uh, College uh, in London. But of course, as we re remember, when we were at university, we were back home an awful lot of the time. You're only at university for 50, 60% of the year, aren't you? The other 40% is back at home. Well, certainly for long Christmas holidays, summer holidays, Easter holidays. He was in a class all the way through school, right up to the age of 18, with people who are walking around these streets and drinking in the pubs, etc. I think we need to do a lot more work on trying to find out what this guy was doing through to him leaving the area. Hey, yeah, take your point on that, Ian. That's well made. Uh, Anthony Hardy probably needs a proper, a proper look at going forward. Second thing, which we know, I think, is a fact is that Fred was married in 1969 to 1970 because his ring yeah. made in Birmingham is being worn. Um, and so I know, I know you flagged up, you're going to try and find uh, marriages in that time and you've looked for some, but it's tough because it's a huge haystack and it's a tiny needle. But, but the answer's in that. I think, I think right. The answer's in that. And, and we can be very clear also that that meant he was married in the UK. If it's been if it's been worn as a wedding ring, he was married in the UK because you know those rings weren't being exported all around Europe. They were for local domestic UK uh, manufacture. Now Birmingham manufactured wedding rings for all over the UK, but mm -hmm. it almost certainly means his marriage was in the UK and therefore somewhere appears in the record books. It's a huge haystack, and I, I appreciate why you tried restricting it to Hungarian names and looking at Birmingham, Burton. That's the starting point. But as we found in looking for other missing people, sometimes those original parameters don't bring anything, but then when you expand them, there's a whole new range of, of things to investigate. So that's maybe. A good, that's a very good point, that, because I was thinking back about this. You know, the reason we, uh, we came upon. Josef Jenner was through those marriage records where we went through all this Jenner, who's this Jenner guy and we followed and we, and we realized that the name of the person he married later was very similar to Frank Cunn's wife and all that kind of stuff that all came from looking from uh, through the marriage records and you're right we, we did what we could do on that but now there may well be another big job to do on a much wider scale of marriages in 69 really well, it's, it's time limited in that we want to get the thing solved, but the records are there. So yeah. we've, we've, we've just got to go through them, I think. Jo will love I, that, Ian. Well, she'll love that. Well. She lives for that kind of stuff. I know. And I think you just, you know, if you're expanding parameters, you can expand them a step at a time, can't you? Yeah. Well, maybe um, we'll need to have some kind of strategy for that. 
where we would say, well, we'll do the East Midlands and then we'll do the West Midlands and then we'll do Yorkshire and then we'll do, you know, you know what I mean? We'll expand it in a kind of concentric radii from, from where yeah. we are. So many interesting stories came out of your initial work on it that, that these are some of the rabbit holes that we've gone down which haven't produced any, anything in relation to Fred. But the, we've got to go down them and there's probably going to be another hundred really interesting stories that come out of us doing it before we find a one that, that leads us to the answer. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So that's two crackers. So um, any more? Oh, yes. One thing which we haven't found is a huge gap from the nasty piece of work, Matthew James Jackson, being reported as missing from 126 and then turning up years later. Um, on the I coast. want to know where he went and what he did and why he went on the day because it's certainly in the in the podcast it sounds like he almost disappeared on a Monday morning when he when he got rid of the body on the Sunday afternoon well he did go missing on a Monday morning I do remember the time where I sat there in the magic attic when I found them and I thought this is it this is this is the moment where we solved well certainly not who Fred was who killed him because in it was exactly at the midpoint of when people had said Fred had been killed based on the decomposition records. Exactly fitted with the ring date. And here's a guy disappearing from essentially the house that across the river from it uh, on that day, on a Monday. And uh, I must admit at the time I thought it was important. But you're right, we, I allowed myself to get deflected into other things as well. But, you know, Matthew James Jackson is definitely a person of interest. Uh, well, this is it. I mean, I don't know if you remember that Mr. A's tale is spun from episode 23? 23, yeah. And it, effectively, the rest of the podcast is delving into that story to try and track it. Now, I guess I, I know why you did, because there's lots of facts in there which check out and your work check them out, what you call them, the guy who lived with his dogs was yeah. a real person who was yeah. supposed to have done that. Yeah. And we need to either press hard to get a lot more information out of the guy who gave you that story or scratch our head and just say, we can't really take this anywhere. But I think that's something that part of me saying leave that because it's distracted us away from the brass tacks and the hard facts that we know, which is where we'll make progress. But the other half of me saying that it's, <laughs> it's a contemporary story and if, it, if it's a grain of truth in it, it's directly related to the killing of Fred. And, you know, we need to find out that the whole story. There's your dilemma. <laughs> yeah, and it is a dilemma. I think... I think my issue with that story now, and you know, I've got to know the guy who, who told me that story you know, well, and, and I like him, and, and I don't think he's a dishonest person in any sense at all. And uh, I kind of almost want it to be true, but uh, we need a break on it in, in order for us to really be able to apply much more time on that. I need something provable to emerge from that real quick. Or, or, and if it doesn't, then, you know, we do have to put that firmly on the back burner and focus on these other things, which we know through our own investigation happened. 
yeah so yeah i think we are at a pivot point uh on that whole mr a story we either make a breakthrough in that or we we say okay well we may come back to this one day if we have to that but again you see when i'm thinking well i want to know more about that i want to know more about that i'm conscious does that mean that what i'm saying is i'm just interested in all the crime that was going on in the local area and getting away from what it was that caused Fred to be killed and buried where he was buried. The yeah. danger of us, of us chasing after the bad guys and just finding all sorts of bad guys, but actually not bad guys or anything to do with Fred's death. Still love this unknown guy who could have been a female impersonator that was dropped off. Uh, well, this is this is being dropped off by Frank and Zoe that time yeah. on the level. But I would say that I am very used to hearing Zoe saying to you, "Well, now you've come to mention it." Yeah, <laughs> she's got no recollection of anything until you say something, and then she has. Bless her. No, am it, I allowed to say that? Sorry, yeah, well, yeah, you are allowed to say that. Uh, I know what you mean, but some of the some of the recollections are so vivid. Uh, yeah, no, no, I'm, they are, I'm, it's priceless stuff, priceless stuff, I, I don't get me wrong, I'm not meaning forget all of it at all, because I mean, it's, she's got a recollection of, of her dad um, yeah. dropping this guy who her mum didn't want, he didn't want her mum to know that they'd seen. Yeah, I mean, it, this is weird, so yeah, it's a weird stuff, I'm very honest on her part, of course, as well. Yeah, well, you, you're sending me back to one of my other things that you've moved on too quickly from probably the final one and it's to who worked at the mill because yeah. I know you've got a little bit of an insight from Frank who ran one of the shifts but there was another shift yeah with another whole team on it that we don't know anything much about but you do have you do have the chap out of accounts that yeah. did the payroll and everything don't you yeah. so we we ought if there's any records anywhere we ought to be able to find a list of staff over the years, and they would all be, they would all have something pertinent to say, I think. But I think it's, I think you've said from the first part of the first episode that whoever buried Fred knew that place to take I, him to, to bury I him. I believe, I think that. Do you think that, by the way? Yeah, yeah. If you don't stumble across that, no, if you're driving around with a body in the back of the car thinking where we're going to get rid of this fella, you don't hump him across a bridge or drive a mile and a half around and across a meadow to hope that there's some nice soft ash to bury him in, do you? No. It, can't see it happening. It's got to be taken there. Somebody knew it. And then I would say that put the people who were on the island regularly, i.e. the mill workers, right in the forefront of, of at least knowing where it was, even if they were advising pals later on that there was a good place yeah well hey that's been brilliant mate thanks for and thanks for going through all that again because it's uh i get uh you know I, i've been so immersed in it for so long it's sometimes difficult to see the wood for the trees and and therefore having someone look at it over a long period of time or actually in a short period of time but the whole the whole uh series and say well these are things that i think are still unresolved and unreconciled that's been really, really, really helpful. I'm glad you're, you're with us on the journey in the next season. It's going to be uh, really helpful. No problem. I, yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually going through it again. 
because there's so much in there. I mean, you know, it, there's no dead air on those. That's and there are 36 hours of it. So, you know, anywhere is something that's, that's been said which just triggers an extra thought or look at it a different way. And you do get some perspective, I think, if you try to listen to the whole thing. Thanks, mate. I'm really grateful for that. Thanks for taking the trouble. Thanks for taking the time. And thanks for your no conclusions because they make a lot of sense, actually. Now I, I hear it all distilled down into essentially, you know, five or six minutes of this is why the, this is the key stuff. It does help it give it clarity. But it's all key stuff you found, Ken. Yeah, but, you know. And then you can't see the wood for the trees when exactly. something a bit sexier and a bit more exciting pops up and you want to chase after it. I understand why you do that. Brilliant. Thanks, buddy. I really appreciate it. Now, don't go anywhere because there's going to be some interesting and new evidence coming up, which you'll need to hear. But thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for coming back to the podcast. It's wonderful to be all together again wherever you are in the world. And for new listeners, welcome to the family. A quick reminder of a few things. If you're a Facebook member, you might want to join Neil DeVille's excellent Facebook page, Who Was Fred the Head? It's well worth joining. A lot of the background information, a lot of the evidence and photographs you'll find on there. And if you want to send us an email, you can. Our email address is fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com we answer every single email pretty much straight away I always look forward to receiving your thoughts about the podcast your theories where you're listening from that's always of interest to me and it is a real community that we've built here so make sure you let me know your thoughts now let's get back to this new stuff there's a lot to talk about Now, one of the advantages of having a break away from the case for a few months is that it provides us a chance to review some of the information that we never got round to digging deeply into. Now, I don't mean just stuff I've uncovered, but some of the comments and questions on the Facebook page, particularly from early on before the podcast was released. One of the things we were able to do is take a deep dive through that Facebook page, looking at every post and every comment on every post, just to see if there's anything that we missed. Maybe something we should have looked at more closely. And there was. There were two things that caught our eye in particular. Firstly, the story of the burned and rotted uniform jacket that was found a few years later. And secondly, the story of the missing contractor. That's particularly interesting. Now I'm aware many of the people who listen to this podcast aren't on Facebook, so won't be aware of what I'm talking about. But in both of those instances, we were able to talk to the people who posted that information to see if we could understand a little bit more deeply what those stories were all about. So firstly, the uniform that was found. Back in the late 70s, a boy called Christopher Parr found a piece of clothing in the scrapyard on Bass's Meadow. That was right next to two boat sheds which had since collapsed. So we're talking about 10 years after Fred would have been killed. Christopher was just a young lad at the time, but it's a discovery 
that he still remembers. And I had a text conversation with him last week, trying to just go through exactly what the circumstances were. So this piece of clothing was made of cloth, a heavy, thick cloth, with at least two different sized silver buttons on it. It had been badly burned, and it was wet through, and had started to disintegrate with rot. So it had probably been there quite a long time. And it was buried next to a big lupin plant at the back of the scrapyard, not far away from the first boat shed and very near the river bank. It was very dark blue or black in colour. Now I asked him whether it could have been an old coat and he was very particular about this. He said no, it was too short to be a coat. It was the length of a uniform jacket and in fact gave the impression of being part of a uniform. Where he found that uniform is about half a mile away from the deposition site, but it's very much on Bass's Meadow and it's very much on the same side of Bass's Meadow as the deposition site. It's about a 10 minute walk away from where the body was found. Now, we don't have access to the jacket or the buttons anymore. It's all long gone, but it's a very interesting find, very unusual one. And of course, most likely it's got nothing at all to do with the case but there are three things going round in my head about this that i find interesting firstly we know all of fred's clothing was missing it had been taken from him and taken somewhere else and probably destroyed this was clothing about 10 minutes away from fred's body secondly we know that this uniform had been burnt. Now that suggests someone had tried to destroy it because it wouldn't burn itself. It wouldn't burn without human intervention. So that's suspicious. This clothing wasn't just discarded. Someone had tried to destroy it and then bury it. Now, one of the other weird things that is in my head is do you remember when the scenes of crimes officer who dug out Fred saying that when they dug him out, he thought he was American? Now that always struck me as a very odd thing to think in the middle of the UK, but I clearly, I remember him saying that. Now, does that tie in with a destroyed uniform? Because the only Americans who were around there at the time were servicemen. So at the moment, we don't know how it fits in or whether it fits in but it's a very interesting find. The second discovery is very interesting as well. It was posted by a lady called Kirsty Patchett about a story that she'd been told by a friend of hers. And it's about someone who went missing. Now I reached out to Kirsty and she kindly put me in contact with that friend. And I had a very, very interesting conversation with him, which I'm about to tell you about now. Now, he doesn't want me to reveal his name, so I won't. I never do if people don't want me to. But I'm going to call him Ray, because I've got to call him something, but that's not his real name. Ray was born in around 1952, and in 1970, he joined the Burton Corporation, which is the local authority responsible for managing the infrastructure and the facilities around Burton. He was a youngster, he was 18, just beginning his career. And he was an engineer, and he was working in the sewerage section of the council. And he worked for a man 
who we also won't name, but let's call him Mr. Green. Now at the time, the council employed various subcontractors to do some of the more specialist and unpleasant jobs. And one of those jobs was to keep the sewerage drainage system clear and flowing and free from blockages. Now, the sewerage pipes from Windshill to Burton run under the river, under the River Trent, about 50 yards away from where the body was found. And they were controlled by two penstocks. Now, penstocks are large valves for regulating the flow of water and anything else that might flow through a sewerage system. And they were housed in two brick outhouses. Now, one of these contractors, and one of the contractors who specifically worked on the sewerage pipes, was a company called General Descaling. And they were based in Worksop in Nottinghamshire. And they came every year in the summer months to essentially clear the sewers. Not a pleasant job. And back in the 1960s and 1970s, the people they would have been employing to do that job would have been itinerant workers. Maybe a bit rough and ready around the edges. And the way it worked was, you had a gang of about six men. Two on either side of the Trent, and a couple of men carrying the spoil up to the skips on Newton Road. Now, they would have had a core team of people from Worksop, but they would have hired local labourers during this process. They lived in a caravan close by until the job was done. This was not a job that people aspired to do. It was dirty, it was messy, it was dangerous. People didn't have the PPE and protection back then that people have got now. Now, remember Mr Green, who Ray was working for? He was the manager. He was a bit of a stickler. He had a handlebar moustache. He was strict. He wanted to know everything that was going on and that everything was going to be done on time. After Ray had been working with Mr Green in the same office in that department for about six to nine months, something happened. A body was found. And now we know that body as Fred. But at the time, no one knew anything. This is March 1971. And as soon as that body was reported in the paper, Mr Green said, I think I know who that is. And Mr Green told Ray a very interesting tale, which I'm about to tell you. One other thing to mention about Mr Green is that he worked for the council, but before he'd worked for the council, he'd been in the police. He was a police superintendent in one of the West Midlands forces. Now, he said, on a couple of summers before the body is found, so it's going to be either summer 69 or summer 70, one of them. We can't be sure about that, but it'll be one of them. General Descaling were working at that site, either side of the river, on Bass's Meadow and on Newton Road side of the site. They had a six-man crew clearing out the pipework. Now, one day, Mr Green noticed there were one-person light. Mr Green asked where he'd gone. He was that kind of inquisitive person. And he was met with a wall of silence. Let's just say he said they were very, very coy about what had happened. Now, Mr Green felt at that time something had happened 
that he wasn't being told about. He was very suspicious at the time. In fact, he had an overpowering sense from their reaction. Something was very wrong. Now, when the bodies found in March 1971, he was sure something was very wrong. And he told Ray that morning, that's the fella that went missing. He was certain of it. Now, Mr. Green died quite some years ago. And I don't know if he ever told the police about his misgivings. But what I do know is that Ray was so convinced by what Mr. Green had told him that when the case featured on Crime Watch a few years ago, Ray phoned in and he reported the tale of what Mr. Green had told him. And a young man working for a contractor at that site had gone missing around the time this man would have been killed. But disappointingly, Burton Police never got back to him. So it's all been forgotten about. Until now. Now I find that a very, very interesting story, but there's something missing in it, which is what's the exact reason why Mr. Green was so convinced something bad had happened? But he certainly was convinced about that, and he was convinced about it before any bodies were found. Now, it might be possible to get further on this story because we may be able to find some of Mr. Green's relatives, descendants. They may know more. He may have told them more than he told Ray. But it's intriguing. And so is the burnt uniform. I don't want to dismiss that either. That's set a few thoughts racing in my head. So we want to add those things to the list of points that Ian made. Anthony Hardy. We need to know a lot more about Anthony Hardy in Windshill. Michael James Jackson, where did he go after leaving 126 Newton Road and appearing on the south coast 20 years later? Who was working at the mill? That's a very good point. We should do some more digging into that. And also marriages. And maybe on a wider geographical range. And I want to leave you with a thought that might just tie up two ends that you've heard in this episode. Something Josefina said and this idea of marriages. And let's go back to what Josefina said about the motivation for dentistry. A trigger for why people decide to have that work done. Was it that he was about to get married and wanted his teeth fixed for the photos? It could be. If Josefina's right, and that dentistry was done six to nine months before he died, well, he would have had that dentistry done before he got married. So it means he was married no later than six to nine months before he died. A fact that also happens to fit in with the ring hall mark. And as we know, pretty exactly now the range of dates for when he died summer 1969 to summer 1970 it really means the chances are he was married in 1969 and that might be very very helpful in narrowing our search down but that is all for next time so until next time have a good one
The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSC Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.